All right. Good morning, everybody. If you got your Bibles with you and you want to follow along, um, our lesson today, we're going to cover two chapters, uh, chapter 33 and chapter 34 of Genesis. And our uh, lesson is titled, One Step Forward and Three Steps Back. One Step Forward and Three Steps Back. Now, I, I, I found myself this week as I was studying uh, chapters 33 and 34, I found myself getting a little frustrated with Jacob. Um, has that ever happened to you in the Bible? You're, you're studying along and you studying the life of someone and you just think, man, how do you keep doing the same stupid things over and over again? Uh, and, and that's really true with Jacob. For, for a man who has had these great experiences with God, he's had these dreams and now he's had this wrestling match with an angel, you think that that would just dramatically change him, right? Especially after last week, after he's wrestled with God and and, and held on through tenacious faith, you would think, man, you know, this, this everything is going to be different for now. But it seems like for Jacob, every time he takes a spiritual step forward, he then turns around and takes two or three steps backward. And I can get really frustrated when I when I look, when I'm studying it. But then I look at myself and I think, well, I'm I'm the exact same way. <laughs> That's me. Um, I, you know, I can take these great steps forward, boy, and I think, boy, I'm never going to do that again. And, and, and a month later or a week later or a year later, I find myself doing the, doing the thing I said I would never do again. And so I think that's really true for all of us if, if we're honest. Now, and this is one of the reasons I love the Bible, because the Bible is very realistic. It doesn't try to paint anybody in this rosy picture to make them seem like something uh, they aren't. In fact... I don't think in my whole life I've ever met one person that's been totally sanctified through one experience. Have you? It just doesn't work that way. You don't, it doesn't happen that way. I, now, I've heard people stand up and claim to be completely different. You ever heard that? Oh, I, it completely changed me. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. You, you stay around that person for just a little while and you'll find out they still struggle with a lot of the same areas they struggled before they had that spiritual experience. Because this is the thing, a, a, a spiritual experience is fine. In fact, they're great. But we have to recognize that a walk with God is a marathon, not a sprint. It is a lifelong journey that we're on. And, and that journey sometimes is going to be filled with, sometimes we're going to take great steps forward, and then we're going to turn around and take steps back. Um, I always think of it like a stock market. If you watch the stock market, it's up and down, up and down, up and down. But if you step back and look over the whole, it, it's, it's, our life should show a rise in our growth and our maturity and our knowledge. But it's going to be filled with uh, ups and downs. And that's true with, uh, with, with Jacob. A.W. Pink in his book, uh, Gleanings in Genesis, says this, It is one thing to be privileged with a special visitation from or a manifestation of God to us. It's quite another to live in the power of that experience. And I think that is exactly true. It's one thing to have this great experience, whether it's a salvation experience, or, but it's a whole other thing to walk it out for the rest of your, your life. And we're going to see that today uh, with Jacob. So let's begin 
with this, this one step forward that we see. Let's start in Genesis 33, 1 through 4. It says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So we'll stop right there. So we'll remember last week in chapter 32, he has, he has crossed the Jabbok River. He stayed on the other side of the Jabbok River and he's wrestled with this angel till daybreak. And he's, and he's held on to this angel with tenacious faith. And, um, and then... Uh, so the angel blesses him, changes his name from Jacob to, to Israel, and boy, you just think he's on top of the mountain, right? And then shortly after that, he lifts his eyes, he looks, and here comes Esau, and he's got 400 men. So this confrontation that he's been dreading literally for 20 years, now, and I don't know, if you think about I don't know how many of you here have had an issue in your family or an issue with a relationship with someone where that that relationship was fractured for a time, and then you finally come together with them. Is that awkward? It's extremely awkward, isn't it? it it's, you would be anxious even in the best of times. It's, it's a whole other thing if that person says they're going to kill you. The last time you saw them, they said, I, you're, you're a dead man. I'm going to kill you the next time I see you. So you can, even now, we can kind of feel the drama of this moment. So... 20 years have gone by, 20 years of Jacob dreading this, this confrontation. So he has to be anxious about what is, is going to happen. Now, I wish, I wish that Jacob, the Bible, I had opened the Bible and the Bible said, and Jacob prayed to God and said, God, you, you've crippled me. You've left me in this, 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 this weak, weakened situation. I, I put all my trust in you. You handle this. I wish I had read that. But we didn't. In fact, it seems like the old Jacob takes over. So what he does, he, he divides his wives and children. He puts the servants up front, then Leah, then Rachel. Now, if he was doing this in order of birth, he would have put Leah first. Because she, she was the first one to get married to him. She was the first one to bear him sons. It would have been Leah, then the two servants, then Rachel. But he doesn't do that. And basically what he's doing is he's going from the least favorite all the way back to, I'm sorry, from the least favorite all the way back to the most favorite. Some, I guess in his mind he thinks, okay, well, if something does happen, at least the ones in the back will have a chance, right? So he's still relying on his own wits. He's still putting these plans and schemes in, in place. Let's see what happens. Verse 4, it says, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Now, this verse kind of shows us a different side of Esau. Up to this point, we know a little bit about Esau, but not a lot. Um, this kind of shows us something uh, about Esau, and that is that he is a—he's very gracious and he's very forgiving. Now, there is no doubt in my mind that God took care of this; that God paved the way for this reconciliation. But even then, Esau's temperament, and I've met people like, have you ever met somebody that what we would call, uh, they have a very mercurial temperament? What I mean by that is they can get mad really fast, but then they, it, it, it drops off just as quickly. 
okay? A lot of men are like this. We can get angry very quickly, but we don't hold a grudge, right? We don't, we don't, once it's over, it's over, we move on, right? We don't get offended that easily. Now, not all men, but, but a lot of men are, are like that. So I think this is what Jacob was, or Esau was. He wasn't one to hold a grudge. And, and I want you to understand something about Esau. Esau had a lot of good qualities. He had a lot of good qualities. He was a, I've said it before, if you had given me an option, do you want to hang out with Jacob or Esau? I'd want to hang out with Esau. He'll, he's the one that'll go fishing with you. I don't want to hang out with Jacob. He'd say, hey, let's go cook a cake. I mean, who wants to do that? Esau would be like, man, let's go fishing. Let's go floundering. Let's, let's, let's go kill a deer. Let's, let's, let's go hang out and build something. I mean, we'd be like, yeah, let's go hang out. And here he is again. He doesn't even hold a grudge. His brother, you know, really did something bad, and, and he just said, you know what, it, it's okay, I'm, I've moved on. He's a man's man. He, in fact, we would call him a good man, but it, when it came to spiritual things, he was empty. He was careless. See, it's not about being a good man. It's not about being who, who wants to hang. It's about who's chosen. Jacob was chosen before they had done anything good. Or, everybody remember that? Anything good or bad had nothing to do with one day Esau would, would be a... It, none of that. It's just about who's chosen. And so we, we like Esau. I like him. But the fact is, when it comes to spiritual things, he, he's, he's, he's just empty. He's careless. He doesn't really care about spiritual things at all. And this is just a quick reminder. When we read these stories in the Old Testament, it's easy for us to label people as good and bad. And it's easy to think of Jacob as good and Esau as bad. Let me tell you, pretty much in life, the truth is always somewhere in the middle. It's not, that's, he's a good guy and he's a bad guy. The truth is usually somewhere in the middle. And that's why I like the Bible, because the Bible is very realistic about these men. It doesn't try to paint, paint them any different than they, than they were. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and he saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And the servants drew near, they and their children, and they bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. At last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, What, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Now, what he's asking there, you remember uh, last week when he sent all the, the, the cows and the, and, the, and the sheep and the chickens and whatever else it was he sent? Y'all remember that? That's what he said. What, what do you mean by all this stuff that you sent ahead? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Now, I want to show you something else about Jacob. You might think, well, is he, is he really scheming? Sure he is. And, and you can see this in his approach to his brother. He, he, he approaches his brother and he bows down seven times. That is a greeting that's normally reserved for kings. You don't just do that to a regular person. To bow down seven times, that was something you did for a king. So he goes overboard with this kind of this groveling that he does. And then he has all his wives and all of his children bow down. And then he says, I'm your servant, you're my Lord. Right? Y'all saw that language there. And so, I mean, that's just, I mean, that's manipulative, manipulative language, right? He, he, there's one thing to show proper respect but he's going overboard with his, with his brother. Verse 9. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Now, I want you to see Esau. He, Jake, Jacob is calling Esau my Lord. And he's calling himself my, your servant. 
And Esau just calls Jacob my brother. Because that's what... See, it's, it's Esau that's the real one here. He, he's not spiritually alive. He's not a believer, but he's a real guy. And he just says, you're my brother. I, that's, that's, that's our relationship. There's, you don't have to talk about this Lord, servant, and all this stuff. So it, it's Jacob that's kind of phonying himself up and putting on this big act because he's afraid of what his brother might do. Verse 10 to 11. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Now, goes on, Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously, graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Now let me say this. Jacob still has issues, as we're going to see, but there's one thing that he got right. He said to Esau, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. And what he's saying here is he understands that God has brought this reconciliation about. That this is God's work, not, not his own. You remember in the last chapter when he wrestled with the angel. The angel said, you have prevailed with God and with men. See, the lesson he learned and what we, we spent so much time on last week was the fact that God is our issue, right? We got all these problems around us. All these problems wanting our attention. And God is saying, look at me. Give me your attention. Because those aren't your problems. I'm your, I'm your, I'm your problem and I'm your answer, right? I'm everything. I'm your, I'm your friend and I can be your adversary. What did we see last week? God opens a door. Nobody shuts it. God shuts a door and nobody can open it. You want reconciliation with a family member. You want, you want reconciliation in a particular problem. It's God that holds the key to that door. And I think Jacob finally got this, this is the fact that prevailing with God meant that now he's prevailed with, with Esau because God was able to make that happen. Now, the thing that he's been dreading for 20 years, the, the, the reconciliation with Esau has now occurred. They've got peace. I mean, everything could not be better in, in Jacob's life, could it? He's wrestled with the angel. They've changed his name. He's, he's, he's got this blessing from God. Now he's got peace with his brother. He has taken a giant step forward. And now he's going to turn around and take three steps back. Let's look at the first one, verses 12 through 14. Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. So let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Now Seir is where Esau is from. Now what is Jacob saying here? Doesn't it sound like he's saying, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, you go on ahead and I'll follow behind at my own pace until I come to your home, right? He has no intention of doing that. I, I think he's got a little bit of Laban in him here. You all remember Laban? He would say something. So he's not really saying, he says, until I come. Well, that, that means a lot, right? I mean, that could be, he can be, mean 20 years. He's not really lying. He may, I'll get there one day, but his intention was never to just follow him uh, straight away. So here he is, he's accepted, Esau has accepted Jacob's gifts, and he, and he even offers, he says, come on brother, let's, 
let's go. I'll, I'll you know, I got 400 men with me. Uh, we can travel together, presumably to the home of their father. And, and Jacob says, well, I appreciate that, but no, no thanks. I, I, you know, I need to go slow because of the children and the cattle. Now, we can understand that, right? That makes perfect sense. You got little young uh, uh, cattle and camels and donkeys and things that have been born. They've got children that, that, are, that are still very small, probably uh, under the age of six or seven. So it makes perfect sense that he would want to go very slow. So Esau understands that, and he makes another offer, verse 15. So Esau said, well, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. Now remember, he brings 400 men. Let me leave some of these men with you to protect you, to watch over you, to help you. And Jacob says, what need is there? Just let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. And so Jacob says, there's, there's no need of that. We're, we're fine. Now, if that doesn't sound quite right to you, you're right. I mean, who in the world would turn that down? Here you are traveling with all these children, all these flocks. Who would not accept extra protection or some extra guards or extra men? Why would Jacob turn that down? Because he has no intention of following his brother. Verse 16. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth, which means booths. Now, if you look at a map, Jacob, uh, Esau has to go south back down to Edom, which is down below the, uh, the Dead Sea. Jake, so he goes actually southwest. Jacob turns around and goes northwest. So he has no intention of, of following his brother. In fact, goes in almost the opposite direction. Now, why would he do that? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. But, but more important, and this is what we have to understand about Jacob, more important, there's a couple of real issues right here. First of all, he, at a very minimum, misled his brother, didn't he? He might say, well, I didn't really lie to him. Well, maybe you didn't, but you misled him. He thought he, you were going to follow him down to Seir, and you went the other way. But more than that, see, Jacob, where he's supposed to be, is in Bethel. And that's what you need to understand. Do you remember the dream that he had 20 years ago? This is, this is part of the dream uh, back in Genesis 28. And he called the name of that place Bethel. And Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, so that I come back to my father's house in peace. The Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and all that you give me I will surely give a tenth to you. Twenty years later, he, he has another dream from God, and God says this, I am the God of what? Bethel. I'm the God that appeared to you twenty years ago, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me, now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your, of your family. See, he's supposed to be going to Bethel. So he, one thing is he's misled his brother. That's problem number one. Number two is he goes to this place called Succoth, and he stops there. Now, no, now we don't know why would he not have gone with his brother. Well, I'll give you a few things. He may have not been very eager to see his father. Remember 20 years ago, he's deceived his father, so maybe he's not real anxious to, 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 to open that uh, can of worms up again. He may not have been excited about living in close proximity to Esau. You know, again, he's, I don't think he fully trusts his brother. 
I, I think he's still wondering, you know, what's going to go happen if I live there and maybe I'll just go the other way. Maybe that was it. It, it could be that the pasture, the, if you go down towards Seir, which is below the Dead Sea, it's a very mountainous kind of desert region. If you go over towards Succoth, which is above, uh, uh, up in uh, more in, in southern Syria, if you go up in there, it's very lush. There's a lot more pasture, and he's got a lot of flocks. So maybe uh, he's up there in the Jordan Valley, so he figures, I'll stay up in here for the pasture. We don't know, but what is clear is this is a step back spiritually. Okay, And, and here's why. Because more distressing than the fact that he didn't follow his brother was how long he stayed in Succoth. Now, let me, let me explain something. Do you remember a few chapters ago when we're going through the Battle of the Brides and all the children are being born, and there was a, it said there was a daughter named Dinah? Y'all remember that? And I told you back then that it introduces us to Dinah because later she's, begun, she's going to come up in a situation that's going to be important. So when they come out of Mesopotamia, Dinah could, could have been no more than six or seven years old, okay? But by the time we get to chapter 34, she is of marriageable age, okay, in a place called Shechem, which means he had to stay in Succoth probably at least six, seven, eight years, okay? Several years had to pass and, and before this next chapter happened. So this is further confirmed. It says he got to Shechem and he built a what? A house. You don't build a house if you're moving on, right? You build a house to stay. You build a house to settle. So here's his problem. He's supposed to be in Bethel. He's supposed to be going back to, to that land, to that place where God had called him. And he stops in, in this place called Succoth and he builds a house for himself and he builds booths or stalls or barns for all of his animals. Now, that's one step back. Now, here's his second one. Verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. Now, this is several years later. Okay? We'll see here in a minute. But this is six years later, seven years later, eight years later. He moves from Succoth, and he comes to a place called Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why did he leave this place called Succoth and he go to this place called Shechem. Never says. Doesn't give us any clue. It just says that he that he did it. But once again, he doesn't appear to be a man that's just passing through. Look at verse 19. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. So he comes to this place outside the city and he pitches his tent. And uh, he, the, the kind of the leader of the area is a man named Hamor, and he owns this property, and he, so he gives him a hundred pieces of whatever the currency was at that time, and he buys the property. Now, again, if you're just passing through, why would you do that? Right? So he has every intention of staying. Verse 20, And he erected an altar, and he called it El Elohe Israel, which means the God of Israel. Now, this is a good thing, but it's in the wrong place. Okay? It's a good thing, the fact that he's building an altar, but he's in the wrong place. He's not where he's supposed to be. And when you're not where you're supposed to be, sometimes not so good things happen, which is exactly what's going to happen in chapter 34, which is his third step back. Let's begin 34, 1 through 5. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. 
And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and he lay with her and he humiliated her. So in other words, the Bible's saying that he raped her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman and he spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Now, here we got this situation where this guy Shechem, he sees Jacob's daughter Dinah, and he he rapes her. Okay, there's just no easy way to say that. It's it's a and it is a it is an abomination. It is a everything about it is against God's law, against God's words, against God's ways. Everything, right? So, but he the Bible says that he loves her. He wants to bring her in and take her for his for his wife. And so his father seeks to pacify Jacob and Jacob's sons, and he makes them an offer. Verses six through ten. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Now, Hamor is talking to the boys, he's talking to to Jacob, and he says, look, first thing he says is, is my son, he loves her, right? Now, again, we could go, go, (laughs) what kind of love is this that, that does what he does? We won't go down that road, but the fact is he kind of stresses that he wants her. He wants to make it right, okay? Now, nobody, nobody here is even, everybody's clear that a wrong has been done and something has to be done about it. Now, back in that day, there's no courts, there's no penal system, the, there's no jails, things like that. So usually you work these things out between <clears throat> families. There had to be some kind of price uh, to, be, to be paid. And so... He comes to them and he says, look, he wants to take her as his wife. He loves her. And why don't you, why don't we make this deal? And I tell you what, he says, you'll be free to intermarry all of our women and, and our, our, our men can marry your women. And by the way, now we can all be together and we can engage in business. We can trade property. We can make money. So in his mind, hey, there's, there's benefits here. Let's, let's move past this, right? And then, His son Shechem, the one who had done the deed, he speaks up, verses 11 through 12. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give you. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So he basically says, look, whatever the cost is, just name your price, anything at all, and I will give it to you. Just let her be my wife. Now... Jacob's sons, they're not interested in a deal at all. They are mad. And they want one thing, and that is revenge. That's all they care about. So when he opens his mouth and says, just whatever you want, I'll give it, you know, just name your price, they see that as an opening or an opportunity to get their uh, revenge. Verses 13 to 16. So the sons of Jacob answered Shechem, and his father Hamor 
deceitfully. Now, let me stop right there. Where do you think they learn to be deceitful? Hmm? From their daddy, right? They, 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 their daddy, their, their, their uh, grandfather Laban, they've been around it their whole life. That's all they've ever known is one person deceiving another person. And so they're good at it already. And so they see this opportunity. So they, they, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister. And this is what they said to them. We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this one condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one uh, people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we'll take our daughter and we'll be, we'll be gone. Now, let me say first of all that there is no way you can defend what these boys are about to do. I just think it's indefensible. I, don't, I, don't, I see very few commentators that will try to defend what they're about to do. Because what they're about to do is they want to trick the Canaanites into being circumcised. And on the third day, when they're the most sore and the most incapacitated, they're going to come in and they're going to kill every one of them for the sin of one man. Okay? One man messed up. Shechem. One man committed a sin, and they're going to kill every male in the entire city. That, that is indefensible, no matter what. So we, don't, we won't even try to, to, to defend what they did. But here's what I want you to see. Jacob's silence is just as indefensible. Now, Jacob, does, as far as we know, he doesn't know what they're about to do. But this is what he does know. The offer has been made. You marry into us, and we'll marry into you. Right? You marry into the Canaanites, and the Canaanites will marry into you. And that is completely against God's word. That is completely against the instructions of his father, Isaac. Yes? Isaac told him, do not do that. But you see, here's old Mr. Passive Jacob. Remember 20 years up there with Laban, and his wives are fighting amongst one another and, and trading for his services, and what does he do? Okay, whatever. I'll just get along, go along. He was passive with his wives, and now he's passive with his sons. He should have said, no. No, we can't do this. Not because he knows what they're going to do, but because we cannot intermarry. So he's just made up in his mind, well, you know, if that's what the boys want to do, that's what the boys are going to do. He's not... I said it before, when his wives needed a husband, he wasn't there. And now when his sons need a father to stand up and be a spiritual leader, he's, he is just... He's not around. Okay? So he, again, he's not this guy you want to put on a pedestal and look at him. Is he chosen? Yeah. Does God watch him and guard him and protect him? Yeah. Thank God. That's all I got to say. Thank God. Because that, that, that's me. I'm not who I need to be. But God watches and guards and protects and provides. Not because of me, just because of his love and grace. So here's Jacob. He's passive with his wives. He's still passive with his sons. Verses 18 to 23. So their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And they're like, that's, that's all we got to do? And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and they spoke to the men of the city. Now let's stop right there. 
Now, I can see why Shechem and Hamor would agree to this, but, you know, somebody walks up to the gate of the city and says, hey, we got a, uh, I got, a, I got a, something here I want to bring up before the, the committee here today. And uh, this group out here wants to do business with us, but we got to be circumcised. And somebody says, well, what is that? <laughs> right? And some, they get up and draw a picture on the whiteboard, right? And they, they turn around and those guys' eyes are like that. They're like, right? So they, they speak to the men of the city and they say, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Now watch, watch his reasoning. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. So the way he convinces them, it's all about money. They're businessmen. They want to make money. They look at everything Jacob's got, and they say, well, this gives us an end to, to trade with them and buy from them, and then all of their, we can eventually make everything he's got ours. So it's all about the financial Side. So they must have believed. Jacob must have had a lot of stuff. Because they had to believe that they were going to profit greatly from this arrangement to go through what they're going to go through. Verses 24 to 29. And it says, And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. And on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers. Now let me stop right there. Dinah was born to Leah. Y'all remember Leah, right? So she was the first wife that, that he married. She bore him four sons. The first was Reuben, the second one was Simon, and the third was Levi. So these are the second and third sons of Leah, the second and third sons of Jacob, and these are Dinah's true brothers. She's got other half-brothers, but they, these two boys share the same mom and dad with Dinah. So it's two of them that, that decide to do something. They took their swords and they came against the city while it felt secure and they killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sisters. So two of them go in and do the deed. And they basically kill every, every male in the city. Okay? And then the rest of the brothers all come in after everybody's dead, and they, they plunder them and, and, and take everything uh, for, for themselves. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and they plundered. Now, here's what you got to understand about Simeon and Levi. Not only did they kill a bunch of people for the sin of one man, they took a sacred seal of circumcision and they perverted it for their own use. Now we could stop right there and have a whole lesson just about taking sacred things and twisting them and turning them to make us, to, to get our own way, to make us feel better. But that's what they, this was a sacred sign and seal of the covenant between God and Abraham and they perverted that thing in order to get their own Revenge. Now, years later, we're in chapter 34. In chapter 49, Jacob is going to be on his deathbed. And he's going to call all of his sons in to, to, to pronounce this, this oral will, this blessing over them. 
and he's going to recall this event. We'll read this several weeks later when we get there. Genesis 49, 5-7. This is the words of Jacob. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and I will scatter them in Israel. This passage actually tells us that not only did they... This is how cruel they were. Not only did they kill all the males, they hamstrung their oxes, which means they cut their Achilles tendon just, just out of meanness. They didn't have to do that, right? But they literally took oxen and just and, and, and cut their Achilles, hamstrung them, so they couldn't, they'd be useless. I mean, that's just cruel. That's just mean, right? And, and Jacob says, on account of their cruelty, on account of their sin, their brother's descendants, so, so the brother's descendants, their families would eventually be scattered in Israel without any permanent inheritance rights. And that's exactly uh, what, what happened. We don't talk today about the tribe of Simeon and the tribe of Levi. They're, they lost all their inheritance rights uh, in the land. Now, this blessing, by the way, removes any ambiguity about what they did. If you think, well, maybe they were just, you know, they were just defending the honor of their sister. And No, no, no. Their, their slaughter and revenge, what, is, what does the Bible teach us? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll take care of those situations, not yours. What they did was wrong. What they did was a sin, and their descendants face the consequences. Now, that's going to come years later, but what about now? Surely, at this point, Jacob will stand up and, and issue this strong word of rebuke, but once again, he fails absolutely miserably. Verses 30 to 31. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? I want you to notice his rebuke. What, go back and read the words. It's all about what? Me. Oh, I'm, I, you know, everybody's going to look on me bad now, and, I, and I, now I've got to watch my back. It's all about me, 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 me. It had nothing to do with, with the morality of what they did. It had nothing to do with the ethics or the principles of what they did. It was just about how does this thing affect uh, me. Now, I'll tell you this. <clears throat> at the end of the day, that these boys, did they do wrong? Yeah, but at least they saw the... The, what happened to their sister as the abomination that it was, right? At least they had some sense of, of a wrong being uh, done. But Jacob just, for whatever reason, when you really need him to step up spiritually, he just checks out. And I, I, it's just really hard and difficult to explain that. I want to make two quick observations as we close here. Do you remember when... When he first leaves home, right, he's, he's taken the birthright from, from Esau. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's deceived his father into giving him blessing. He's fleeing from Esau, right, and he's met by God at Bethel. Everybody remember that. He has a dream with the angels going up and down the ladder. Uh, Twenty years later, he's coming. he leaves Mesopotamia, and he's hotly pursued by Laban. Laban's on his trail because somebody has stole their household gods. And God warns Laban in a dream, don't touch him, 
And then finally, Jacob comes back to Canaan and he, and he sees an, a campsite of what? Angels. You remember that? So every time he's coming into danger, God shows up. In fact, Esau comes with 400 men and God shows up as an angel and wrestles with him, right? And what we need to see was, even though when, when, he, when Jacob felt like he was under the most danger, it was always when he was the safest. Because God was always, always had his back. Everybody with me? Every time he was in the most danger with Laban, with Esau, uh, with, with whatever, God was always had his back. He was never safer than in situations where his life seemed to be in the greatest danger. In contrast, he was never in more danger than when things were going good. He was never in more danger than at those times when he felt the most secure. You see, when he got free of Esau, when Esau left, he, Jacob thinks, well, you know, all the danger's gone. I can handle this myself, right? Now, let me tell you, Jacob is just like you and me. There's not a human being on this earth that doesn't fall into that trap. When things are dangerous, when there's something bad going on, when there's sickness or there's a family situation, what's the first thing we do? We fall to our knees and we call on God for help. And then once that, once that situation passes and everything seems to be going good again, we forget all about that and we think, well, I can handle this. I got this. I, I'm, I'm good with this. And the reason, now you may say, well, why do we do that? Well, the reason's really simple. We are most inclined to trust in God and obey Him when we sense that we're in danger. When we sense we're in danger, we immediately turn to God. It's then that we see, man, our only hope is in God. God has got to show up and, and do something. And so we trust Him, we obey Him, we pray to Him, we, we, we do all the things we should do. But the same thing is also true when those dangers seem to diminish. We tend to slack up in our trust. We slack up in our diligence. We slack up in our, our prayer life. We slack up in our, our Bible reading. It's, it's what's known as foxhole Christianity. Okay? When things are tough, everybody's a Christian. <laughs> everybody's looking to God. But boy, when things go good, we just kind of think we're like Jacob. Well, I can, I can handle this thing. I, I bring that up today because I want to read Romans 15.4. And I, I've, I've quoted this several times, and I want to remind us as a people this morning what Paul says. Whatever was written in former days, he's talking about the stories in the Old Testament. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. These stories of Jacob are written to teach you and I lessons so that we don't have to learn from experience, we can learn from his experience that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have, have hope. So my encouragement to you this morning is to listen to the story of Jacob. You know, is, he, is it exasperating? Is it frustrating? Yes, it is. But there are lessons in there for me and you uh, to, to learn from. And lesson number one is this. Hold on to God no matter what's happening on the outside, right? Don't, don't just run to Him when times are hard and then, and then after it's over, just figure, well, I, I got this. I can handle this. God is looking for that tenacious faith that holds on no matter what and no matter what situation, good, bad, whatever may come. Next week, we turn to uh, uh, Genesis 35. Let's pray. Father,